0: Hello everyone, this is the Dr. Christian Heim podcast, where we're living for mental health, love and compassion. We're really glad that you could join us again. So if you haven't visited us before, my name is Caroline Heim, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Christian Good day. And today we're starting a new three-part series on self-harm. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at the facts about self-harm. Okay, so who is this actually for, Christian? Well, I'm glad that you've asked me that because we think of self-harm as a problem of teenagers. And it usually starts in the teenage years, but there are people who in their young adult years are self-harming, adults are self-harming, and I have treated people in their 60s and their 70s that still have a problem with self-harming. So it's for the broader community also to know about this rising problem in our teenage girls in particular in our society. Really important. Really important. Okay, so let's just go straight into it then. So studies show that up to 13% of people up to the young adult years engage in deliberate self-harm. Now, most of these people will not let other people know that they engage in self harm. So, it's one of those secrets of our society. It is much more common in females with a five to one ratio, but I don't want you to think that it is just a female problem. It is a problem for a lot, a lot of people. And what Really is difficult to see is that rates are rising. One study from the UK, for example, showed that there was almost a 30% rise in self harm for young females over a 10 year period. So we have to ask ourselves a question why do people self harm? Why do something like that? Well, there are many reasons that people self harm. Firstly, self harm could be cutting yourself, it could be burning yourself. It could be drinking to excess. It could be engaging in risky behavior. Uh, People who have excessive tattoos and body piercings or scarification could actually be engaging in self-harm. But you don't know. Just because somebody has a lot of tattoos doesn't mean that they're self-harming. Taking drugs, too, are a form of self-harm. This leads to a broader issue because all of us do things that are not in our own best interests. And the question is, why do we do that? Why do we do things that we don't want to do? So that's a broader issue that I will come back to in future podcasts. At the moment, talking about self-harm, we're going to talk about things that actually cause pain, like cutting, rather than pleasure. Now the problem with things like cutting yourself is that it's a form of self annihilation. It's like you want to get rid of some of yourself, or you want to put some of yourself down or punish yourself. It's like a mini suicide. There's this idea behind it that you somehow don't deserve to be here in this universe, which of course you do. Now there has to be something wrong for this situation to arise. Perhaps, A nihilistic worldview contributes to it. Hopelessness, we know, contributes to it. We also know that self-harm is contagious. If you have friends or peers or people around you who self-harm, there's more of a chance that you will self-harm. Seeing it in media reports and internet exposure also contribute to self-harm. And there is that idea of copycat suicides, which we have known about in the past. Studies have shown, however, that there are certain things that do definitely increase the risk of self-harm. Coming from a low socioeconomic status, being victimized because you are part of the LGBTQI community, having a parent who has died or parents who have separated or divorced also increases the risk. One of the biggest risk factors is being abused, physically, emotionally, but especially sexually. Bullying is a risk factor. Certain mental illnesses are risk factors, and I'm thinking particularly of borderline and bipolar. But bear in mind that less than 3% of the population have a borderline personality disorder, and less than 3%, getting close to 2% of the population, have a bipolar illness and we're looking at somewhere like 13% of the population engaging in self-harm, it's not a borderline or a bipolar thing. There are other things that are going on. Okay, back to some of the risk factors. Perfectionism, having unrealistic life expectations, being impulsive and feeling a lack of belonging is one of the big risk factors. Instability is also a risk factor. What I mean by that is, if your family background is unstable, if you have an unstable view of your own sexuality, and and look, this is normal for almost everybody during the teenage years, being unsure of who you are as a person is also a risk factor. Now, we're looking at that, which is a normal part of life in teenage years, as a risk factor for self-harm. The thing is that most of us come to some sort of an understanding of who we are during the teenage years, but some people don't, and that's when it becomes more of a risk factor for self-harm. Why do people self-harm? To express distress. That's the main reason, because there are these raging emotions, rage, Anger, fear, and the person feels that the only way I can express this is through self-harm. So communicating emotions becomes important to alleviating the effects of self-harm. Other reasons that people self-harm? To gain control. And the main one that I hear most of the time is to stop feeling bad because just for a few minutes, like a drug, Self-harm can feel good. All right, so when I'm in my office, I get to hear other reasons for self-harm. These are the things that people tell me. I deserve it. I'm a bad person. I need to punish myself. And the most telling one is this. Physical pain is much easier to bear than emotional pain. And studies have actually shown that emotional pain actually hurts like physical pain and in many cases more. Now, self-harm reflects self-loathing. I really hate myself and a lot of self-harm may symbolically reenact childhood trauma. All right, heavy stuff, but it's real. This is what's going on in our society. Um, And what we need to do is find ways of alleviating it so that people who are self-harming feel that there is a way out of this. And there is. Studies suggest that self-harming won't persist into adulthood. For most people, in other words, it goes away. However, because it was a coping mechanism, a way of alleviating emotional distress, it can often continue in people, particularly in females. What doesn't go away after self-harm are the scars. Now look, superficial scars, they may go away, all right? Sometimes they leave a white line, but deeper cuts, they leave deeper lasting scars. And unfortunately, scars on your arm and your wrist can be a lifelong legacy. And people who hide their self-harm, what they do is they cut their upper legs or their abdomen But there comes a point in life when they start to regret those wounds. So the more you can take care of your body and the more you can actually love your body and respect it, the less you're going to be inclined to self-harm. Some of the complications of self-harm. Self-harm accounts for about 5% of all emergency department presentations. Now, these are the people that need to go to accident and emergency because they've cut themselves so deeply that they need stitches or they've broken bones. They've injured blood vessels or nerves or tendons and they find they now have infections or septicemia. So in other words, an infection that's raging through the whole of your blood system. Not a good situation. It does become life-threatening, and I have seen it. Now, all of these physical things are usually able to be fixed by our wonderful medical system. But feelings of shame, feelings of stigma, feelings of self-loathing and self-hate, low mood, difficult social relationships and a difficult sense of self, so still that lingering feeling of not knowing who you are, they're the longer-term issues that psychiatrists like me will often need to work with in people who are still self-harming. The other thing is suicidal thoughts. They can actually be a lasting problem. So the self-harm may stop, but there are still some problems that remain. All right. Now, we're talking about the facts, but I am interested in stopping self-harm, and many people ask me to help them stop self-harming because they kind of know that it's just not the right thing to do. Now, to be able to stop it, you have to be able to understand that self-harming is a coping mechanism. What do I mean by that? All right, I don't know if you've noticed, but this world is stressful, all right? And we've all got to cope with that stress somehow. This is how we cope with stress. We exercise, we run, we scream, we get angry. Um, We do things like talk to other people. We sort of say, okay, just leave me alone. I'm going to veg out in front of a movie or just give me the uh, internet and I will play some games. These are all ways of coping with a very stressful environment. But for some people, the stress gets really high. And when it's things like my parents hate each other, my uncle sexually abused me, my father beat the living crap out of me, I am being bullied by four people at school every day. What these sort of stresses do is bring into question your very existence. You sort of think, why me? Why is this happening to me? And what can I do to stop it? And if it doesn't stop, then you will find a way to alleviate your distress because these emotions, these energies, the anger, the injustice of it all, the fear leads you to think, okay, what am I going to do to get these bad feelings out of me? Self-harm, strangely enough, comes to the rescue. Because as I mentioned before, physical pain is easier to deal with than emotional pain. And all those things that I mentioned, the sexual abuse, your parents divorcing, being bullied at school, that causes emotional pain. And emotional pain is more difficult to deal with because it's intangible. When you have physical pain, like let's say when you break an arm, People can see that. They can give you empathy and you know why you're hurting. You can see it. It's supposed to hurt and it does. But we have this strange idea that if things assault us emotionally, that we're not supposed to hurt about it. But it does hurt. It hurts terribly. So self-harm makes you feel in control just for that moment. It can make you feel alive when so much of your life feels dead. It can release endorphins from your brain that make you feel calm and it has a drug-like effect. And the problem then becomes that self-harm is a coping mechanism that gets used often and it becomes a habit and it can even grow into an addiction. Because here's what the brain does. The brain says, help, help, we're in distress, don't like these emotions, don't like the distress, what can we do about it? Oh, self-harm makes me feel alive. Self-harm will get me to release some endorphins so I can feel good. Self-harm will put me in control. Oh, and I can focus on the physical pain and hey, that's a whole lot better than the emotional pain that I'm going through. So there's an association between self-harm and I'm in control, this feels good. And that association means that self-harm can become like a drug. And it does. The trouble is, like a drug, it gratifies in the short term only and becomes a long-term problem. So to get out of this problem will involve, one, recognizing that it's a problem. Secondly, understanding your emotions and being able to face your emotions And lastly, finding a better way of coping with your emotions. So in other words, finding a better coping mechanism, a better way of expressing your emotions. And that's basically what the next two posts will look at. Okay. Here, I've just looked at some of the facts of self-harm, why it's a problem in our society, and to give you hope because there are ways out of self-harm. And that's coming up next week. So there you have some facts about self-harm. Please join us next time when we look at Preparing the Way Out of Self-Harm.